It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. I can say everything and make people comfortable and make people even say, oh, yes, thank you so much. Doesn't matter. Doesn't change what happened. Our work, though, changes what happened because that's, you know, it's over. But we help move forward. Earlier this week, I spoke with Tom DeSena and Junior Lalbashan, a crime scene cleaning duo otherwise known as the Soul Mediators. Tom and Junior have amassed over 200,000 followers on TikTok, where they showcase footage from some of their unbelievable cleanup jobs. No matter how big the task at hand, the duo is always up for a challenge. The pair understands the role that empathy plays in their line of work, seeing it as a rare chance to provide families the positive reassurance they need in order to move forward from traumatic events. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out my interview with Tom and Junior to hear about their most memorable jobs and even for some cleaning tips. Don't go away. Gianna Gelosi is bringing you an interview that you won't want to miss up next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Ted Kaczynski, more popularly known as the Unabomber, was one of the nation's most notorious domestic terrorists. On Saturday, June 10th, 2023, he was found dead in his prison cell at the age of 81. Spanning over two decades, Kaczynski terrorized the country by sending various bombs targeting universities and airlines, hence the name Unabomber. From a young age, Kaczynski was a mathematics prodigy. At only 15, Kaczynski graduated from high school and enrolled at Harvard University, earning his bachelor's degree at age 20. At just 25, he began teaching at UC Berkeley, making him the youngest professor hired by the university. It all changed when Kaczynski began isolating himself from society, becoming a recluse in a cabin in the mountains of Montana. Subscribing to a neo-Luddite philosophy, Kaczynski rejected technological progress, believing it degraded nature and mankind. From his remote shack, Kaczynski constructed a number of bombs designed to harm and kill people, which he believed were responsible for advancing industrialization and modern technology. In 1995, Kaczynski offered to end his killing spree upon the publication of his 35,000-word manifesto entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. After reading the manifesto in the Washington Post, David Kaczynski recognized the language and the sentiments displayed in the writings as those of his brother, leading him to approach authorities. In 1996, Ted Kaczynski was arrested at his Montana cabin. He was sentenced to four life sentences and 30 years in prison, where he spent the remainder of his life. Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole is a retired FBI profiler who worked closely on the Unabomber investigation. She joins me today to provide the details about the life and motivations of Kaczynski and the impact of the case. Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your involvement with this case and your reaction when you heard that the Unabomber killed himself? Sure. Um, I, I was a FBI agent and an FBI profiler um, 
in the mid-1990s, and I got involved in the Unabomber Task Force starting out in, in San Francisco, which was the lead FBI office on the case, and then later was transferred back to the BAU. So my role in the San Francisco FBI when I was assigned to the case was to be um, on a panel of other agents from both the FBI and other agencies to interview the victims these are the people that that received a package in the mail that ultimately ended up being a bomb. What we did not know was whether or not um, the the addresses of the people um, indicated that they knew each other, if there was a nexus between the two. So we had to interview all those victims in order to understand um, what was the relationship between the victims. And then once I heard that he had died, I was I was surprised, but I knew he was he was older. But once I heard that it's it's uh, likely that he committed suicide, that did surprise me. Um, so to backtrack a little bit and jog the memory of our listeners, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, built these untraceable bombs, delivered them to random targets that you ended up finding out, left false clues for you guys, the authorities, and then was living in this hut shack in montana in the mountains of montana and this wasn't some you know uneducated guy he went to harvard he taught math at uc berkeley how do you catch a killer that's so smart and wants to be this perfect anonymous killer well it's those are all great questions and i don't know that his primary motivation was to um kind of be the face of that perfect criminal. I think that here was somebody, as you say, he was extremely bright. He had his PhD in math. He had taught at a university and he had just had it with society. And so he decided to live in this very tiny um, cabin in Lincoln, Montana. And I think that was really part of his personal philosophy that drew him to Montana. But that really just increased the the problems for us in terms of finding him because here was somebody that would send a bomb through the u.s mail or he might hand deliver it and then he was gone he was like a phantom he was gone and he returned to to lincoln montana so um and he his victims uh lived anywhere throughout the entire united states not just california or new york they were across the United States. So that made it even more challenging because we had absolutely no idea where the next person um, would be who would become a victim. And we knew after talking to all the people that had their names on a package or had received a package, there was no relationship between the two. It was really challenging. And how did he choose his victims? To this day, I'm not sure how he chose the victims. At the time, there was no internet, so it wasn't like he could look them up. Um, but most of his early victims, uh, he started in 1978, so most of his early victims were college professors. And even, even his last victim, who survived, and I was able to interview him, um, he also was a college professor. So the underlying theme throughout all of his victims were that they had an academic um, um, relationship with some university. So did that give you guys the idea that he might be involved in university or teaching? It did early on, and, and there were split feelings about it. There were some people that thought he was more of a blue-collar worker, and then there were those of us that felt 
No, this person, at least at some point in his criminal career, had had some type of affiliation with the university. That's number one. But number two, we felt that he was extremely highly educated. And that came from how he constructed his devices. Um, and, and then number three, that, you know, this was someone that was more of a, certainly more of a loner and not someone that um, would, once we found him, would spend a lot of a lot of time interacting with other people. And what was it about those bombs that made you guys think that this is a guy that knows what he's doing? Well, the number one, unfortunately, the bombs were pretty effective. Um, and the bombs, like most bombers, they have a signature that they put on the bomb just to make sure that you know that it's that it's them. And the bombs were were made in such a way that uh, when you started to open the package that would cause them to go off. And then he had put other things in the bomb, um, nails and other things that would that would be lethal, um, if not seriously damaging to the victim. So they were intended to um, to kill people. They weren't just intended to scare people or to just do minor damage. They were intended to be lethal. Now, you guys were investigating for nearly 20 years. The break came in 1995 with this 35,000 word manifesto. Tell us about right. that. Well, the manifesto came in. It was the first one that we had received and uh, it was long. It was single space. It was um, going back and looking at it again. I, I saw that it was, it was very well written. Um, it must've taken him a very long time to construct that. And that reflects uh, what most manifestos are. They go back in time in terms of the author's experiences with life. And he talked about how he felt about uh, society and technology and how they interacted with one another. Um, and then at some point, he talks about the need to make sure that his manifesto gets put on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post so that got it received the attention that it needed to receive. So not unlike some people today, some mass shooters that want their manifesto out there, uh, Kaczynski did the same thing. He wanted credit for his murders. And I thought, you know, that was a real lesson learned for us that this was very important to this individual. So going back, it was an impressive document, I think, even to this very day. And I was listening to an interview you did uh, earlier on Fox, and you were saying that you and your task force had a hand in getting this manifesto published. Well, we did, but there was a group of us. And so another agent and I um, flew up to New York City and we met with the New York Times and gave them the um, kind of the reason that we felt putting this in the newspaper exactly as the Unabomber wanted it would be incredibly important because the writing was so unique. The sentiments were so unique. Someone is very likely going to recognize the writing. And then we went down to the Washington Post. I, I remember it was on the same day and explained our rationale to them from a um, psychological perspective, how important that this was. And as you can imagine, I still recall to this very day, neither newspaper wanted to do it. And I understand that because here you have a basically a serial killer demanding that their manifesto gets put on the front page 
um, of both of these um, preeminent newspapers. I mean, what a heck of a precedent that was setting. And yet I think that they realized ultimately after they had more conversations with the FBI and other people within the newspaper that this could be very helpful. And so at the end, they uh, both papers agreed to do that. And it was because the manifesto was publicized like that. Ted's brother recognized his writings and came forward. And that's how we were able to identify him. Yeah. So that was a year after this manifesto. Um, and what was the reaction when you guys felt like, okay, we finally cracked this case after almost 20 years? Well, obviously we were excited, uh, as you can imagine, and we were we were um, kind of in shock that that this had worked and and that this had really came to a successful conclusion because it had been so long in the running. It had been, you know, as you say, it had been twenty years, and so we we knew early on in the twenty years, Ted fell kind of fell under the radar screen for a long time and we were concerned that that could happen again. So we were basically just incredibly relieved that he had been identified because people were just really frightened by the Unabomber. They were just very afraid of what was going to happen next. And part of that was based on he was getting better at being a bomb maker. So it was um, the ability to breathe a sigh of relief. Why do you think he ended up writing this manifesto if it was something that could implicate him? Well, I'm not sure he really sat down and thought, down the road, this could this could really implicate me in these bombings. I think what he was um, striving for was recognition for what he had done. Um, he had designed his crime scenes to be, again, more phantom-like mail the bombs or come and deliver the bombs and then move away and nobody would ever see him, know him or be able to give a description of him. So I think at a certain point, and I see this in other serial murder cases, the, the serial killer starts to think, wait a second, I'd like to get a little recognition for what I'm doing. I'd like to be recognized for what I'm doing. And he was very smart and Ted could write well and I think he, while he was up in Montana, he was able to put together his thoughts and he began to think that what his views were of the United States and the world should be shared with other people. So that's kind of where that bit of narcissism comes in. And I think it was the combination where he felt, no, I this needs to be put out there. I've killed three people. And had I, he says it in the uh, manifesto, had I not killed three people, the newspapers probably would not have published it. So at that point in 1995-96, he felt he had a little power. Yeah, we did a, we covered a case last week about this man in Texas who called police and was like, hey, I killed my roommate and then implicated himself in another murder. Now he's being looked at for uh, almost 10 possible connections to other murders. And so I was wondering, yeah, like, is there something in these criminals that wants the notoriety? Do they want to get caught? Do they like the cat and mouse of it all? What do you think? They do. That's a good way to put it. They don't want to be caught and go to, to jail. That's It's not a, a, a subtle uh, pathway to achieving that. But it is amazing when you think about it. They want credit. They want recognition. They want uh, people to realize just how smart they are. The cat and mouse um, idea is is very relevant in many of these cases. And so uh, a lot of that was applicable to the Unabomber. 
And uh, I know just from the news side of things about how you had to go to these newspapers and ask them to publish this. I know when we have these school shootings now, there's even a effort to maybe not name the school shooters to not give them the notoriety that they might be seeking. And earlier you were talking about how his manifesto um, has some similarities to those of these school shooters that we're seeing or mass shooters that we're seeing in recent days. What are the similarities that you found? Well, several of the similarities include um, the length of time that it looks like it it took to write the manifesto. So in Ted's case, um, that had to be a document he'd been writing for years. That's how his brother recognized it because he had not seen his brother for years. So the themes that he put in the manifesto were themes that he had been espousing for many years. Um, so that was one thing. And we do see that in other manifestos um, in current mass shootings. And then the other thing again was he wanted credit for his ideas and he wanted credit for um for what he had done um and then number three he felt that what he had been doing was um acceptable there's no place in the manifesto where he expresses um empathy for the victims or for what he had done. So he wanted people to know what's going on in his head and why he was doing that. And that he wanted us to know what he thought about society, academics. Um, he wanted people to know that his thoughts are really important or, and are extremely relevant to the point of wanting them put on the front page of both of those newspapers. So that that is a lot of arrogance and wanting to do that even though you know you're a serial killer. Yeah, and Kaczynski ended up being one of the most notorious domestic terrorists in U.S. history. So are there some things that the FBI learned from this case that they still use today when profiling uh, threats or these mass murderers? Yes, I think once we moved beyond Ted's case, then we came into the era of the internet and social media, uh, even though Ted mentions the internet in his manifesto, it was nothing compared to the way it is now. And now law enforcement, when we're doing threat assessments on who could commit a mass shooting or who is responsible for one that's already occurred, we look at their writings. We look at what they post on social media because even though it seems um, strange, people that commit those kinds of crimes want to tell you about it beforehand, especially in the case of younger people, and then ultimately want credit for it. So now we rely on people's writings and what they put in writing and then take it seriously and and, and make an effort to analyze the threats that may be contained within the manifesto. Well, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole, thank you so much for sharing your insight into this case. And you worked on so many cases that I'm sure I'll be talking to you at some point. Uh, along the line. But thank you for taking your time to talk to us today. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.